Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so grateful to you for this season. Uh, Lord, we uh, take this very seriously, and we understand the great anticipation that came for a world that was in darkness looking for a great light. And Lord, for those of us who have been redeemed by the Savior, for those of us who know where our future lies, who have hope and who've been made, come from being dead to being made alive through Christ, uh, we know that this is such an important time. And Lord, we know what a, a miracle it was for you to show up in the flesh here in this world uh, to save us. And so Lord, we ask that during this time over the next few weeks uh, that we would uh, be blessed and our eyes would be opened uh, remembering the anticipation of your arrival here to a world that so desperately needed you. Lord, we're grateful for this season, and at the same time, we know that there are those here uh, that are hurting right now. And this season can be a reminder of some wounds and some hurts that are happening, people that are missing that should be here, whether that is from broken relationships or from that is from loss uh, to death. And uh, Lord, we know that uh, it can be a very difficult time to spend the first holiday uh, without a loved one. And Lord, we ask that you would heal the hearts of those that are here. Let them uh, focus on your healing power, your peace, your love, your joy. And Lord, through that, uh, we would come to be healed in our souls. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray all of this. The church said, amen. Oh, this is a great time of year. I love this time of year. I think this is great. It starts getting cold. You get out the Christmas stuff. This is a great time of year. And in particular, what I want us to do is spend these next few weeks in Advent thinking about the excitement and the anticipation of the idea that our God came for us. Amen. He came for us to rescue us and to save us, and he came in the flesh to do it. And so we're going to spend some time on that over the next few weeks. We're taking a little bit of a break from our vision uh, uh, talk that we're doing, but this is all part of it. This is why we do what we do. This is all part of who we are. And so we want to spend this time together. If you haven't been with us uh, before, and you, maybe you haven't been part of an Advent before, maybe you're new to church and you're going, well, how does this whole thing work? I got a great question this morning from somebody who's new. He goes, hey, help me understand this. How do you have God and Jesus being the same person? And you go, man, that is a great, great question. The idea that we have a heavenly father who put everything into motion, who put the stars in the sky, who made the earth turn, who separated land from water and sky from uh, earth, and at the same time said, I am coming for you. I am coming to get you to bring you back. And so decided to come in the flesh is a mystery and a great miracle and a wonderful thing that we get to talk about in particular this time of year. And it changed everything for us. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that and hope that this will become more clear to all of us as we do this and we lean into our Heavenly Father. So uh, Advent. Advent is this time where what we do is we look at the anticipation of the arrival of our, our God in the flesh. And we'll spend the next few weeks, we're going to do love, love, and then we're going to do peace, and then we're going to do hope, and then we're going to do joy, and we're going to talk about all of these things that arrived here in this world in the person of our, son, of our Savior, Jesus. And uh, so we're excited to be able to do that, and we start this week with love. And, you know, it's, it's interesting as a minister because you go, well, get up and preach on love. Get up and preach on, on God's love. And you go, that is such a broad topic, it can, it can be kind of difficult. Uh, because we talk about it a lot, and we talk about God loves you, and we talk about the love of God, and we, we mention that, and sometimes we forget to really dive deep into that and discover what that means for us, because that should be something that changes us. 
It's something that affects us. It should be something that moves us in so many different ways. And so there's a lot of ways to look at the love of God. And today in particular, what we're going to look at is the arrival of Jesus and the love that is an enduring love. And that's the thing we're going to focus on today is an enduring love. And with that, we have a scripture this morning. Uh, I, I picked uh, as a scripture about love the one that's the most concentrated, packed full of the word love in the middle of it that you can find. So this is uh, 1 John 4, 7 through 21. And if I can, I want to give you a little background on this one. 1 John is a letter written by the disciple John. And we spent a little time in that earlier this year, if y'all recall. I don't know if you remember. But we spent a little time uh, studying the gospel of John. And one of the things that he talked about a lot was love. And one of the things he even mentioned is this is, this is a letter written by him by the apostle who called himself, this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He called himself that. And I like that. And one of the reasons that I like that he called himself that is not that he's singling himself out to go, I was loved and the rest weren't. This is a guy who understood that he was loved. He came to grasp it. He came to understand in some ways, I'm a disciple that Jesus loved. And because of that, everything's different for me. Everything changed through that. And so he had this understanding. So in, in these 15 verses, you're going to see the word love used 27 times. I mean, it is chock full of all of that. And he's writing this letter to some believers, and in particular, this group of believers had had some people step away and abandon the faith, and the reason was because they could not come to grips with the idea that God came in the flesh. It's too hard, and it's very difficult for them to understand. And in particular, they had a lot of Greek influence that came in that said the flesh is evil and the spirit is good, so there's no way that a good God could come in the flesh because flesh is evil. And with that, they abandoned the faith. And they turned their back on it because this idea of an all-powerful, all-gracious, all-righteous, all-holy God coming in the form, uh, in the flesh, as a child, was just more than they could bear. And so, so John writes this to them, and he focuses right on this, that this has to be about the love of God. And so here's the scripture of 1 John 4, 7 through 21. I'd like for you to pay close attention to, to every time he says, this is, because what John's going to be doing is going, I'm going to prove to you, and I'm going to show you what love is. He'll say this, this is, this is, this is. Pay close attention to that. Here we go. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him, and he is in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we can have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear 
Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So much love packed into that short scripture. And as you can see, that's where we got the song, The Greatest Commands, that comes from. There's a lot of that that's in there. But one of the things that I want you to understand is this is the disciple John going, I want to show you what it looks like. I want you to understand. I want to show you the proof that comes from this. And so in a lot of ways, what he's writing here are some things that are like proof. Verse 9 and verse 10, if you want to underline, if you're an underliner in your Bible, go to verse 9 and 10 and 13 and 17 because he keeps saying, this is how. This is how. This is what it looks like. This is how it's manifested. This is what love looks manifested. This is how it's revealed. This is how it's unveiled. This is, this is its demonstration. This is how love is disclosed and visible for us. In verse 9, he says, this is how you know he loves you. He sent his son. Verse 10, he says, this is love that he sent his son. Verse 13, this is how you know that you belong to him. Because he gave his spirit. Verse 17, this is how love is made complete in us, is that you rely on the love of God so that he lives in you and you live in him. This is how. This is how. This is what it looks like. And this is how he loves us. Now, I got to tell you, it is really important for us to grasp the idea of how we're loved by God. It changes everything. And so our hope here this morning is that we dive a little deeper into that, that we will come to understand and experience more in the way that we're loved. Because he talks about this demonstration of love, and it's not just a certain kind of love, but he even calls it perfect love. He said, this is perfect love, and this is what it looks like. And that leads us to the spot to go, well, if there's perfect love, then there's imperfect love, and there's a scale, and how do you measure? How do you measure love? I mean, there's some of that that we know is pretty simple. I mean, the difference between I go, I love pizza, and I love my wife, I need to know the difference between those things. And in particular, she needs to know the difference between those things. But how do you measure love? Because we live in a world where everyone says they want it. That's what I want in my life, is I want love in my life. I want my life to be filled with love. And there are some ways that we found it. Maybe you found it in a spouse. Maybe you found it in your children. Maybe you found it in your parents or some friends. But for the most part, in our world, the idea of love is something that we have in a reciprocal relationship. In other words, it's something that we give back and forth to someone. We even talk about it that way. We're in love with someone. I love them. They love me back. And that's what makes the relationship work. Because I love you. You love me. We're in love with each other. We have love. That's oftentimes what a romantic love looks like. That's oftentimes what a friendship looks like. I have this friend. I love him. He loves me. That's what makes the friendship work. That defines our relationship is that we reciprocate with each other. It goes back and forth. There's this equity in the relationship. If you were to think about your dear friends, that's one of the things that defines it is I love them and they love me. And the fact that that goes back and forth defines our relationship. And then when you have children, you start realizing this idea of dependent love, right? Where you have this dependent and this person who's trying to learn how to love you, but you've poured what you can into them because they are dependent on you and you have that love. But I want to tell you, even in the best marriage and with the greatest kids and with the most wonderful parents, you need to know that your soul yearns for more than that. 
It yearns for a love that's even deeper than what you have there. You were made to need something even more than that, something more perfect. That's what he's trying to describe is to go, there's this perfect love that's even more than that. And we know that because our relationships haven't been perfect. As a matter of fact, you may have been part of a relationship that had the word love around it that's failed in some way. This idea of what's called unrequited love. It's not a word that we use a lot anymore, but the idea of unrequited love is this love that I give out, and it's defined as it's not returned and it's not rewarded. And some of us may have been in a relationship like that where I loved someone and it was not rewarded and it was not returned in some ways. And that's painful. It's something that hurts. I'm talking more than just when you were maybe dating someone and you came out the first time and said, I love you, and they said, thank you, which is painful. I, I speak from experience with that. Not my wife. I, I got to tell you, the first time I told my wife that I loved her, we had been dating for quite a while, and it slipped out. I remember I was looking deep into those big baby blues, and I said it, and when I did, it shocked me. And so I immediately tried to stuff it back in my mouth. It was kind of a, I love you. Oh, and she just laughed at me. But then she said she loved me back because that's a big matzo ball hanging out there, right? If you don't get the I love you back, that's a big deal. That unrequited love. And that's awkward. But even more than that, if you've been in a relationship before that was supposed to be surrounded by the idea of love and it wasn't given back to you in some way, it was broken. Maybe you've had a parent who at some point while you were growing up, you disappointed in some way because of your behavior. And you've been disowned. Or the relationship was broken in that way. Or you have a child that you've poured your heart into to raise and to love. And they've turned their back on you in some way and have left. You've had a romantic relationship. Or maybe even a marriage that's fallen completely apart. Because they just got to the point where they just don't feel the same way anymore about you that you do about them. That is a painful, harmful, hurtful thing to have unrequited love. And really, it's probably our greatest fear in this world is the idea that I will love and I will not be loved back in return. Someone's love for me will not endure my eventual failures. That eventually I'll let them down, and it won't endure that. That's that idea of enduring love, right? Endurance, the idea like I do a little running, like I can endure running a couple of miles. I cannot endure 10 miles. My body will fall apart. It will collapse. I cannot do that. It can't withstand that sort of pressure. And that's a great fear that we have too is the idea that I'll have this relationship that won't be able to withstand what will eventually become my failure because at some point, I'm going to let you down. At some point, I'm going to disappoint you. At some point, I'm going to fall. And my greatest fail, my greatest fear is that your love will not endure when I let you down. And you'll withdraw it. And it won't come. That idea of this enduring love is this continuing and abiding and constant, eternal, unshakable love that has the stamina to withstand my brokenness. That's the enduring love that we're talking about. That's what we all seek more than anything in the world, and that's what we're all most afraid we won't be able to get. The fact is you have been designed to love more and to be loved more than you can possibly imagine. And that's where the Lord comes in. That was what happened with the arrival of Jesus. 
That sort of perfect love that he's talking about there is what God's people have always talked about. As a matter of fact, if you look back through Scripture, you see it all the time, even before the arrival of Christ, there was this prayer and these talks and the way that they wanted this to go. And for God's people, it was usually mentioned in this love that endures forever, this steadfast love. The conversation that would happen, it was asked for over and over in Scripture, this unwavering, steadfast, firm love. Not a love if you do this, but an enduring love. As a matter of fact, if you start looking through Second Chronicles, this is one of when God's kingdom, God was setting his kingdom up on, here on earth in some ways with his people. He had the Israelite people, and they had a king. And one of the things that they were going into war, and as they were going into war, they sang this song. This is Second Chronicles 20, 21. This is Jehoshaphat. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat, the king, appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. That's as they walked into battle. Later, it was one of the Psalms, 136, that we'll spend a little more time on a little bit later. Give thanks to the Lord for his good. His love endures forever. Jeremiah 31.3, when you had the prophet Jeremiah talking to the people, trying to get them to return back to God, and he said, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Things that can endure. And then Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. It's an ongoing theme throughout Scripture, this desire that we have for an enduring love that won't fall apart because of my weakness, that won't be withdrawn from me when I fail, that you won't take away, that you'll keep those promises. We crave that from God, and he has promised it for us. And the interesting thing about this is when you start talking about enduring love, it's, all, it's not about promises being made. It's about promises being fulfilled, promises being kept. That's the great love stories that we know. They're not about promises being made in a relationship. They're about promises being fulfilled and kept, right? That's the difference between a romantic comedy movie and a great love story. Right? A romantic comedy is the idea that what happens is we see these people and you hear this story or you watch, it, 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 watch the film and they, they have the, the cute meet, right? They meet each other and they like each other and there's this attraction and then there's romance and they play hard to get or whatever. The boy chases the girl, then the girl chases the boy. And at the end of it, they get together and that's, there's a lot of words and maybe it even ends with them getting married or this making this commitment to one another where they say these things of here's what I want it to be. That's what a romantic sort of comedy looks like. That's the stuff that makes for romance. That's not a love story. A love story is not about you making promises. It's about those promises being kept. The great love stories are about the people who made these promises and they withstood hardship and they withstood sacrifice and they withstood these deep tragedies that maybe they had to have with one another and they stuck together throughout their whole life. That's the great love story. That's the difference between a romance and a great love story, right? I mean, one of the things that I remember a long time ago, I was about 12 years old when, when uh, Prince Charles and Lady Diana got married. I don't know how many of y'all remember that, but I'm old enough to remember it. Like I said, I was just like 12 years old, and I'm sitting in there with my sister who's a couple years older, and then another sister who's like six years older, and I remember watching that wedding, 
And I don't know, but it's this great romantic story, right? He's the prince, and she's a commoner, and they fell in love. And then they're having their wedding, and it's in St. Paul's Cathedral, which is this beautiful, huge place. And she has this giant gown, and then she walked in, and they're playing the music and the large organ, and everybody's watching. And I remember I'm watching, my mom and my sisters are watching this, and of course I'm like, I don't get it. I don't really know what the big deal is. Seems like a lot of money on a wedding, but I don't know. But I remember them just being enwrapped in what's going on and the world being enwrapped. And I do remember the guy who was kind of the announcer and was talking about it. I mean, you're watching it like a football game. And so they're talking about it, and they go, this great love story. And, you know, I get to thinking about that now, and I go, the problem with that was that was a great romantic story. But that was not a great love story because let me tell you, promises were made under a great cathedral and in front of all of these people and under all the pomp and circumstances. The tragedy was that they weren't able to keep them. That love was not able to endure what they went through. And so it was a great romantic story, but it's not a great love story. The great love story happens not when promises are made, but they happen when promises are kept it's not in the vows and the saying of the vows. It's in the keeping of the vows. And that tragedy was that they didn't have an enduring love that could stay. And that's where hurt comes from. And that enduring love is what God has promised us, and that's what the incarnation is. That's God promising over and over and over. I love you with a love that is steadfast and that is enduring and that will never go away, and I'm coming for you. And you need to know I'm coming to get you, and I'm coming to rescue you, and I will enter this world. That's what the incarnation is. It's that promise being fulfilled. It's that vow coming true. It's God coming no matter what our shortcomings have been, no matter how many times that we failed. And here's the deal. You may not feel it, that love of God, that enduring love. You may not even recognize it, but you need to know that has nothing to do with whether or not it exists. Because it's there whether you feel it or not. It's there whether you recognize it or not. So your belief or non-belief in it doesn't make it exist. But here's the issue. Your belief in it is what will change you. There's got to be a belief in it. Because even the love that can be showered upon you, if you don't believe and you don't understand, will not change you. Let me give you a little bit of an example of how that works. Because if I don't believe how I'm loved, I'm not changed. If my wife says that she loves me and she will never, ever leave me, but I don't believe it, then here's the problem. I'm always feeling insecure. I'm a jealous person. I'm a fearful person. My worry is always that she may find somebody better and that our love won't endure that. And so she'll leave. That has nothing to do with how much she loves me. It's whether or not I believe it. If my mother tells me that she will love me even when I'm not acting lovable, but I don't believe it, then what happens is I always feel the pressure to be good enough to deserve her love. And then my intimacy is hurt with her because I don't want to tell her about the times that I mess up because I'm afraid what will happen with that is she'll see my flaws. And so I keep my failures as a secret because I don't want her to know the bad stuff about me because who knows which one of those flaws may cause her to quit loving me. It has nothing to do with her loving me. It has to do with what I believe about it. Can you imagine your daughter, your little girl coming up to you and you say something like, you know, mommy loves you, daddy loves you. And she looks and she goes, 
because I obey, right? You don't want your child to be looking at you and believing that because she'll live the rest of her life in fear that if I mess up enough, I'm no longer your daughter. And that's no way to live. That's not an enduring love. I want my children to know my enduring love. Let's go, no, baby girl, you need to know it has nothing to do with whether you're good enough. It will be there no matter what. It can endure anything that you do. There is nothing that can take that away from me. That's what changes in us. And we have that great fear that God's love will not endure our own failures from the past or from the future, and that's what leads to fear. And that's why he says perfect love drives out fear. There's not supposed to be any in that. The steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. It always endures. It's always there. It is promises kept. It is the arrival of God here on this earth in the flesh to fulfill the promise that I've always had for you, that I'm coming to get you. And it has endured your betrayal, and it has endured your denial, and it has endured your disobedience, and it has endured us turning our back on him and us being taken into exile and us worshiping other idols, and it has endured every bit of that because he says, I'm coming no matter what. No matter what, I'm coming for you. And that sort of love that endures everything is what we most desire in the world. That incarnation is the promise being kept. It is love that endures. And here's the deal. You don't have to understand all of it. And there's no way you can comprehend every bit of it. It's deeper and it's wider than you can possibly understand. But as you come to believe it more and more, in the slightest way, it will change you. You will be a different person. In the same way that I am with my spouse, as I come to believe more and more that she loves me no matter what, even when I'm unlovable, and she's not leaving when I'm at my worst, I'm a changed person with that. So much more so with our Heavenly Father. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus didn't have to come with love. Did you know that? I mean, you start thinking about all the things that it said would come when Jesus comes. Like, we're expecting, God's people were expecting, we're expecting someone to deliver us. And he was going to come, and he's even been described as come. He'll come with wisdom and counsel and power and might and judgment and knowledge. And he'll come with righteousness and even mercy. But he can do all of that and not come with love. All of those things could be accomplished without him coming with love. But that's not the way he came. Many rulers have come in that way and said, I will come with justice, and I will come with might, and I will come with power, and I will even come with peace. That was the promise of Caesar. I'll come with all of those things. But what our God does is says, I'm going to come with all of those things, and it will come with an enduring love that can't be shaken in any way. I'm not coming out of vengeance, and I'm not coming out of anger, and I'm not coming because I got misbehaving kids that are messing up the room down there, and I got to go fix it. I'm coming out of love. That's what's driving me from the glory of heaven to come down here and get you. And coming in the form of an infant that's helpless. It's love that drove me to do that. That's how you know he's come in love. Because he didn't come wielding a sword and wrath. And he didn't come on a throne to start with. But he came as an infant who would wield a cross later. And when he came, he said, here's the deal. I'm coming in weakness and I'm coming in obscurity and I'm coming in a hopeless place and you need to know as I come I've come to trade the best of me for the worst of you that's how you know I'm coming in love 
not wielding a sword around here. I'm going to do this great exchange, my riches for your poorness, every bit of it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 talks about that. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through poverty might become rich. That's the trade. Then 2 Corinthians 5.21 says a very similar thing. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how you know I come in enduring love because I have come to trade the best of who I am for the worst of who you are. And I'll make this trade with you. All of these things that you think about that the Lord traded with us. Jesus was punished so that we can be forgiven. He was wounded so that we can be healed. He was made sin with our sinfulness that we may be his righteousness. Jesus tasted death so that we can have his life. He was made a curse that we might receive a blessing. He endured poverty that we may share his abundance. He bore our shame so that we can share his glory. He endured my rejection that I might have his acceptance with the Father. He was cut off so that we might be joined to the Lord. Our old man was put to death in him that the new man might come to life in us. It's a great trade. It's a great trade. We really come out well in this one, just so you know. It's this enduring love that drove him here. And the incarnation is the promise fulfilled of a love that won't ever die and a love that won't ever stop. And that's why we're different. That's why I love this scripture in verse 10 of what we originally read. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. This is the definition. This is it in the flesh. This is the promises that you've always heard coming to life in the flesh. This is the pictures that you've seen of me as a cloud or as fire or in a storm or as a sacrifice. And now here I am in the flesh to show you every bit of that. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then God in the flesh is worth a billion. Here I am to show you every single bit of it. This is the proof. This is the action. This is a visible enduring love and I'm coming for you no matter what it doesn't matter how you failed it doesn't matter that's why I love verse 16 in that too so we rely on the love of God that he has for us if you want to know what it what it means to belong to Christ it's not you relying on how strong your love is for him it's you relying on how strong his love is for you I rely on the love of Christ do you get it all no I don't grasp all of it. Are you able to understand the depth and the width of how deep his love is? No, I don't get all of that, but I've come to rely on it. That's where I'm putting my hope. That's where I'm putting my trust is in that enduring love that is steadfast and that will never, ever end. Let me tell you, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't made a decision to say, hey, look, I'm putting my trust in him, you need to know it is not about you coming to grasp in every single detail how deep his love is. You won't do that. It's about you trusting in it whether you're able to grasp it or not. It's coming to rely on his love that he said, I'm coming to get you and I'm coming to save you. And there's no mistake that you can make that would cause me not to come. And I'm coming in the flesh, and I'm going to redeem you in every single way. And for us to go, I just don't know if you can love me from what I've done, is a denial of his love. That takes the focus off his strength, and it puts it on my weakness. Instead, rely on the love of God. That's what I'll rely on, and that's what makes us different. 
This is the enduring love that we have. This is what we anticipate and the world anticipated with the arrival of God in the flesh during that day. It's what changes us. It changes our reliance, and it makes us different people. It even talks about the only way you're going to learn to love each other is if you come to grasp in some way the way I love you. That's the way you'll love one another. That's how his love is complete, and that's what makes us different people, and that's what should define us as a church and a body. We are people that have been loved in that way, and that's who we are. If we can, I want to remind ourselves of it, and so we're going to stand. If you would stand with me, and we're going to read uh, Psalm 136 together, uh, verses 1 through 9. You know this one. It's, for his love endures forever. You will see the part of uh, his love endures forever will be in yellow. So I'll read the white part. You, you read the yellow part, okay? Here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. Who made the great lights. The sun to govern the day. The moon and stars to govern the night. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your enduring love. We thank you that our relationship is not dependent on our failings or on our ability to have enduring love, but it's based on yours. We thank you that there is no mistake we've ever made, that there's no flaw that we've ever had that would cause you to take it away from us. But instead, that promise was fulfilled in your arrival here on this earth 2,000 years ago as an infant in a manger. Lord, we are the redeemed of you. We belong to you. We are your children. And because of that, we will always remind ourselves of your enduring love. Let that change us. Let that be who we are. Let that guide us in every single way and show us how to love one another. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.